Sean Irola, and I've got an exciting pair of interviews for you today. Uh, actually, there is a theme to the show, and it is the environment. They sure know how to book for when I'm going to be uh, hosting the show. Um, but we got two interviews for you, and so without further ado, I would like to uh, to uh, invite the the first guest to the show. This is Michael Brune, Executive Director of the Sierra Club. Michael, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Uh, glad to have you on, and uh, for a pretty important topic too. So uh, the Sierra Club and some of your allies are uh, launching a lawsuit against uh, Donald Trump's dirty power plan. Can you tell us about the uh, the origins of this lawsuit? Sure, so a little background. So the, the power plan, uh, Obama had a clean power plan that focused on getting not just carbon emissions, but air toxins, an immense amount of water pollution out of our power plants. Meaning that in order to produce electricity, we had been emitting large amounts of all sorts of different kinds of pollution. And with Obama's EPA, we were able to make significant reductions in the amount of carbon pollution, mercury, other air toxic soot and smog coming from these power plants. And it was arguably the largest area of progress that we have made in the United States on climate change by far more than anything else. And so, of course, when Trump took office, what happened, obviously, was that uh, he took steps to try to reverse that progress. And so rather than replacing coal with solar power or wind power or battery storage or a whole suite of clean energy solutions, Trump wanted to keep the United States locked into coal as the dominant source of electricity for years and years and decades to come. Uh, we're working to stop that. We're working both in the courts and in the marketplace, and we're pretty confident that we're going to be successful. So um, I, I know that look, Trump campaigned on bringing back coal and all of that, which is he certainly has some power to influence, you know, uh, subsidies and things like that. But I've also heard for years that the 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 market is just moving away from coal as a competitive. Uh, fuel uh, anyway, and that, that theoretically things are moving towards uh, clean energy regardless of what Donald Trump would like to do. So I'm curious, he certainly has this mission and he's had a couple of years now to achieve it. How much has he been able to hurt the effort to switch over to solar wind and things like that? Not at all, no progress at all coming from Trump on that front. So let me tell you a little story about this, in 2010, which is around the time that I started at the Sierra Club. The United States used to get about 52% of its electricity coming from coal. There were 530 coal-fired power plants all across the country. And we set a goal in, uh, in the Sierra Club to basically move beyond coal and to make sure that every coal plant was replaced by clean energy by 2030. We set an interim goal of wanting half of these power plants retired by 2000 and 20 by the end of by the end of the decade and we've hit that goal we have now retired more than 60% of the US fleet it's being replaced by clean energy resources increasingly it's being replaced by solar and wind and battery storage at a lower cost to consumers and one final point that under the Obama administration we were retiring a coal plant about one one coal plant every 15 days wow. since since Trump has been elected we have been retiring, retiring a coal plant about one in every 15 days. Hmm. So this is happening regardless of what Trump is trying to do. It's happening in part because clean energy resources are cheaper, they're more affordable and they're more accessible 
but also because people have been organizing. They have been litigating the Sierra Club, Earth Justice, dozens of organizations have been fighting this in the courts. And there have been tens of thousands of activists and organizers, scientists, teachers, people who live around these coal plants who don't want the asthma attacks. They don't want the hospital room visits. They don't want their air and water to be polluted because of a power source that is outdated and unnecessary. So it's a big success that we've had across the movement in organizing against these coal plants. And even though Trump is trying to undermine that, he won't be successful. So I'm curious about some of the numbers here. So the EPA had put out a press release around the the ACE plan, Donald Trump, one of his energy plans, and it talks about how much emissions reduction that we can expect from it. And if you just look at the raw numbers, it looks pretty good. But apparently they've been doing a little bit of tricky accounting with those numbers. So can you explain a little bit how they're sort of manipulating things to make Donald Trump's energy proposals seem better for the environment than they actually are? Sure, well, the short answer is that this came from the Trump administration. It was started by Scott Pruitt and has been continued by a corrupt administration and a corrupt EPA that doesn't really have the American Americans public interest at heart. That's, that is the most honest and most succinct explanation that I can give. A more detailed explanation is that what is happening is that they are inflating the costs of transitioning to clean energy. Uh, and they're also inflating um, the ability that coal has to meet the demands in the marketplace. In reality, we are already moving beyond coal. We're doing this in red states like Oklahoma, where coal plants have been retired replaced by wind and it saved consumers in Oklahoma $400 million. Wow. It's happening in Iowa, mid-American energy in Iowa, which is owned by Warren Buffett, has made a commitment to move to 100% clean renewable energy rather than relying on coal plants and nuclear power. It's happening in California, it's happening in the upper Midwest, even down in the South, we're seeing in almost every state across the country, we're beginning to replace coal, and increasingly we're replacing fracked gas with clean renewable energy. We're putting more people to work and we're saving money in the process. And anything that the Trump administration tries to do to reverse that won't be successful. I'm curious about one thing though, and that is um, you know, when Trump got into office, uh, relatively early on in his first term, they, they put fairly significant tariffs on uh, solar panels. Um, and I saw an updated report on the effects of that within the last month saying uh, that it had killed theoretically something like 60,000 jobs, $19 billion in private investment in solar. Um, do you think that, that that has been a significant handicap to the development of solar? I mean, I know you're saying overall the, 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 the rollout is going well, um, but those tariffs certainly can't be helping. Yeah, the short answer I give to that is yes, sort of. So we are seeing tremendous growth both in the solar industry, in the wind industry, and then also for battery storage. Those three technologies combined is what's making it possible to replace coal and natural gas. So even though each of those industries are growing pretty significantly, they would have been growing even more. We would have seen more jobs, we would have seen more cost savings, and we would have seen a lot less pollution if we had a federal government that was actually acting on the side of the American public and not just the biggest polluters in the country. So I don't want to sugarcoat everything. A lot of the stuff that's happening from the Trump administration makes this work harder. It makes the progress we're able to achieve happen more slowly. It limits the amount of pollution that we're able to cut, but it's not stopping us. It's only 
serving to make this work more difficult and take more longer than it should. And so to return to the lawsuit, um, hypothetically, what, what, is, what is the end goal that you're aiming for with the lawsuit and what sort of timeline can we expect it to proceed in? So our plan is to make sure that the lawsuit doesn't proceed in court and we expect to be successful as we have been successful in almost every lawsuit that we brought against this administration. Whether it's working to protect our wetlands, our air, our water, our climate, our forests, our endangered species. Uh, not just the Sierra Club, but many of our allies, we are winning in court almost all of the time. And our goal is to have this rule be vacated to make sure that the clean power plan under the previous administration continues to be the law of the land. And in fact, when there's a new administration, that we dramatically accelerate the rate at which we're replacing all dirty fuels, coal and gas and nuclear power with clean, 100% clean renewable energy. So at the same time that you're fighting back against some of the plans of, uh, of the, the Trump administration, I know that you must be looking forward to the possibility that there could be a change in the presidency in 2020. Are there any um, environmental focused pieces of legislation, any proposals that the Sierra Club is in particular interested in seeing pursued or that you might be endorsing? Certainly, uh, Green New Deal. We think that that's uh, one, piece, one piece of legislation that I'll highlight. Uh, which offers an enormous opportunity, not just to cut air and water and climate pollution, but to put millions of people to work across the country and really revitalize American infrastructure. Uh, we're really excited about the opportunity to not just fight climate change, but to reduce economic inequality and begin to heal some of the divisions that exist in this country. So um, that's something that we're putting an enormous amount of resources into. And it's why we are gonna be fighting as hard as we possibly can in this election to elect champions for reducing inequality and fighting climate change at all levels up and down the ticket. We need a new president. We need to have different leadership in the US Senate. We need to make sure that we have strong leadership in the House, but we also need governors and state legislators and mayors to advance Green New Deal policies at the local, state and federal level. Uh, I, I certainly agree, I'm curious. Uh, like I would love for this election, the presidential election, to turn on the strength of someone's environmental policies. As you've been following this primary process, there have been some questions at the debates about climate, about the environment. There's been talk about doing more you know, focused events around that. How satisfied have you been, has the Sierra Club been, about the quantity and quality of questions and debate around environmental policy, climate change policy, things like that? How satisfied am I? Not satisfied at all. Uh, I think that there have been a couple, a few questions about it in all of the debates that we've seen so far. And sadly, that's dramatically more than we've seen in the past couple cycles. So I guess you could say that that's progress, but it's really not that much of progress. And um, you know, to be honest, what I would also say from the candidates, what we've seen from most of the Democratic candidates so far on paper, and in speeches that they give that are devoted to climate change are pretty strong policies from most of the field that's out there. If you look at their, the policies that we're seeing, just about all of them are better than what we've seen from any presidential candidate yet. What we're not seeing yet is um, sufficient examples where you have presidential candidates who are linking their climate policies, with their economic policies, with their policies to support a more vibrant and robust workforce. Uh, they're not looking and we're not seeing the innovation yet, nor are we seeing candidates take the opportunity to show how all of these issues um, are at the crisis level. 
and that they're all linked together. And so I don't want to just blame the networks and the moderators for not asking enough questions and not devoting enough climate change. I also want to issue a challenge to the Democratic uh, presidential candidates to take the opportunity to more aggressively say fighting climate change won't just solve the problem of climate change, but it will solve some of the other biggest challenges that we have in this country. Um, can we expect that at some point in the cycle, the Sierra Club will either uh, grade the environmental policies of the different candidates or possibly um, issue an endorsement? Uh, we will see how it's going. Right now, our main focus is simply to have a competition, both of ideas and uh, to have candidates uh, show how they'll execute their plans, uh, either through Congress or through executive action. We're not quite in the position right now. We're evaluating one candidate against the other. We want to just stoke more and more of a competition. We've worked with a few other of our peer groups to help uh, inform their grading of different candidates. But for us right now, uh, we're mostly trying to push every candidate forward. We may make an endorsement in the primary process. We'll kind of work to see how that unfolds. It won't happen early in the primary, though. Okay, well, if you decide to, feel free to do it on the conversation. We would love that. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Michael Bruin, Executive Director of Sierra Club, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me on. We're gonna take a short break here, but stick around because after the break, we've got another interview for you. We're staying on the environment after this. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the conversation. Uh, if you're just tuning in now, I am John Iderola. And if this is literally the first time you've ever seen this show or me, uh, you can also find me uh, every day on the Damage Report. And we actually do um, sorts of interviews that are fairly similar to the sorts of things that we do on the conversation. We like to have academics on, activists, politicians, all of that. And so feel free to tune into that for more. Uh, joining us now, a great example of this sort of thing, Dr. Devra Davis, founder of the Environmental Health Trust. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much, glad to be here. Uh, glad to have you on. And uh, you were recently spoken to uh, by a story concerning uh, the potential regulatory headaches involved in the rollout of 5G, which is one of the sort of like tech things that everybody is sort of waiting for and it's taking a long time, but there are still concerns about what it could mean. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those concerns? Well, certainly what we know is that when you test the 5G millimeter waves in experimental protocols with cell cultures, we can accelerate the growth of bacteria and viruses. We know that the millimeter wave that will be used in 5G, it actually can damage the eye. This, is, this has been established, and that's why standards are set for military use. Now, in fact, 5G is not just millimeter waves. That's what a lot of people don't appreciate. What, what will happen with 5G is it will take antennas and we'll need a million more new ones than we currently have. Mm -hmm. And they will have to be located about 100 yards apart from one another in the urban environment. Think mm -hmm. about that. And in addition, you'll have to be cutting down trees and they have potentially damaging effect on animals. Now, you're taking signals that currently are 4G and 3G that work for the phone that I have here on airplane mode. and <laughs> you are bringing them closer than they've ever been to human beings in history. Because right now they're in antennas, often on top of mountains or tall up, which is where they're supposed to be. And 5G is gonna bring them, and the, in many cities they've made rules that they can have them eight feet above the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna give us proximity 
not just to the millimeter wave, but to 3G and 4G. And there've been a lot of mistaken ideas about what 5G really is, but it's not just one thing, that's for sure. Okay, so what I'm curious about is, um, it, it, it's as you've laid out, it's a different technology in a number of different ways, potentially quite significant. So in terms of evaluating the potential health hazards of this new technology, um, what sort of process has it gone through? I mean, I know we as a country, we're looking at the deployment of this technology, but it's also going on in other countries. So um, are we doing uh, the rollout in a different way than other countries? Uh, how is this being handled in terms of health concerns? There are no tests underway, nor are any planned on the health or environmental impact of 5G. This violates the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires an assessment of any major environmental regulation. Uh, and it's an incredibly arrogant uh, approach that we're taking. It's sort of trust us, we're gonna build this thing. We don't really even have standards yet for how it's going to operate. And that sign that you're holding up there about 5G kills brain cells and bees, we actually have data on the honeybee that have been developed by Swiss engineers, many of whom are supported by industry. And those data show that if you have a honeybee and you make a model of it with three-dimensional imaging, you can resonate perfectly with the body of the honeybee with 5G. And those scientists who produced that study in warned that if we release 5G, it can have an effect on the ability of honeybees to function. Now, this is not just a theoretical concern because studies were done with 3G and 4G phones where they took hives and they put the phones into the hives. Now, of course, bees don't make phone calls. So we know that's not exactly very realistic, but they did put a hive with a phone in it that was not working, one where it was working, and then one as a control. And what they found after just a few weeks of operation, which was the hive where the phone was on, the honeybees did not come back to make honey. Now, honeybees are one of about a thousand different pollinating insects. Pollination is absolutely critical to agriculture. Right now, as you may know, there's a business booming of people driving around to farmers with trucks with hives in them because there are so few bees in certain areas mm. to pollinate, whether it's for wine or other agricultural products. Yeah. So, so we have a big problem now. So um, I think you've rightly laid out uh, the threat in that area. In, in terms of potential effects on, on humans, because as you point out, they're gonna be deployed throughout cities and things like that. Let's say worst case scenario, uh, the government does not update their standards, doesn't institute any sort of new regulations in terms of making sure that this technology is safe. And it is deployed all around. Um, how quickly, what would the turnaround be on perhaps independent scientists tracking any negative health effects? Or is this a thing where hypothetically it might take a while and some of the damage might be baked in before we find out what effect widespread 5G access actually has? That's a really good question and I'm really glad that you asked it. Um, the, the answer is complicated. In fact, we do not expect people to drop dead from 5G. It's not that kind of signal. However, uh, the problem is the effects that we do anticipate are general. Things like headache, uh, problems with sleep. Uh, there may be more serious problems such as an increase in heart attack or stroke. And those things which are general, it will be very difficult to pinpoint that 5G is a cause of those things. But here's what we do know. Studies again have been done where they take blood from people who live closer to cell towers today. 
within, say, 50 meters, compared to blood of people who live perhaps a thousand meters away. A thousand, okay? And they have found molecular markers in the blood of people who live closer to these 3G and 4G antennas now that are indicative of inflammation and predictive of an increase in cancer risk. That's blood work. It's not a question of people being biased because they see a tower and they don't want it there and then they tell you they have a headache. There's actual data that has been published in the peer-reviewed literature showing these damaging effects, biological effects, in people. So you will hear, for example, that 5G signals, again, the millimeter signal, doesn't get very deeply into the skin. That's true. It only gets about a 64th of an inch in. But guess what? The skin is our largest organ. And we now understand from scientific work that's been published just a few months ago that the skin is actually an immunological organ. That means it's part of what helps the body to protect itself from cancer, from other diseases. And it's been well uh, documented to play a major role. You know how you feel when you've been indoors working too long in front of your computer screen and you go outside and the sun is shining and you get some sunshine on your body uh, and you feel good about it? That feel-good feeling isn't just for your skin, is it? It is a systemic response. So your skin has a systemic function. And the idea that it's just some kind of paper-thin barrier and so therefore it's impervious to 5G because it doesn't get into the body, is, is biological nonsense. But yet, that statement has been driving the United States uh, and other countries to push the 5G process. Now, fortunately, there are a number of countries and a number of cities around the world, including in the U.S., that are waking up. And frankly, I just was reading an article today by a telecom expert that says 5G is a huge scam. The standards don't exist. We're going to build the system because you need to put all these antennas together before it can work. Then we're going to use public utilities to put it on telephone poles and street lamps that the city has built. And then we're going to charge you to use the signals that we put through this public resource. And by the way, you're going to have to buy 5G routers and 5G phones and 5G computers in order for it to get the full benefit of it. Unless, of course, you already have the 5G-enabled coffee pot, washing machine, and baby diaper. (laughs) And I'm not making it up. Those all exist. But the reality is this is a huge marketing opportunity. And it has not been subjected to any safety testing. Full stop. Okay. And uh, I know that you recently, uh, just a couple of months ago, you had an op-ed published in the Chicago Tribune uh, that people can look to for more information. Uh, Dr. Dever Davis, we really appreciate you joining us on the show today. I'm delighted to talk with you and I'd look forward to talking further. Good luck. Thank you. And for everyone at home, uh, thank you for joining us uh, throughout these two interviews on the conversation. We do have a post game plan. So uh, if you are a member, uh, certainly stick around for that. Brett Ehrlich is going to be uh, joining us at the desk and he's got a couple of fun, uh, I would say happy half hour inspired stories for you. So we're just gonna take a short break, but stick around for that post game after that.